Today's episode is brought to you by Casper, where you can get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Get $50 off your order when you go to casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, The Atlantic, The Tom Hartman Program, Laura Flanders, and The National Sierra Club. The environmental movement is celebrating one of its biggest victories to date, President Obama's rejection of the Keystone XL oil pipeline. After years of review and one of the most vocal grassroots campaigns this country has seen in decades, Obama announced Friday he will not allow Keystone on his watch. The pipeline would have sent 830,000 barrels of crude every day from Alberta's oil sands to refineries on the U.S. Gulf Coast. Defenders called it a boost to the economy and a gateway to cheaper gas prices, while opponents warned of a devastating impact on the climate and the residents along its route. In his remarks, President Obama initially appeared to cast himself in the middle of the argument, saying the issue has played a, quote, overinflated role in our political discourse. He rejected supporters' view that Keystone XL would help the economy, but also opponents' view that it would be a, quote, express lane to climate disaster. But then Obama showed which argument he is siding with. Challenging the claims of Keystone backers, Obama said Keystone would not bring economic growth, lower gas prices, or increase energy security. Meanwhile, he did not directly refute opponents' warnings Keystone would mean dangerous carbon emissions from the extraction of tar sands oil. And near the end of his remarks, Obama acknowledged approving Keystone would undermine the global effort to stop climate change. America is now a global leader when it comes to taking serious action to fight climate change. And frankly, approving this project would have undercut that global leadership. And that's the biggest risk we face. Not acting. Today, we're continuing to lead by example. Because ultimately, if we're going to prevent large parts of this earth from becoming not only inhospitable, but uninhabitable in our lifetimes, we're going to have to keep some fossil fuels in the ground rather than burn them and release more dangerous pollution into the sky. As long as I'm President of the United States, America is going to hold ourselves to the same high standards to which we hold the rest of the world. And three weeks from now, I look forward to joining my fellow world leaders in Paris, where we've got to come together around an ambitious framework to protect the one planet that we've got while we still can. If we want to prevent the worst effects of climate change before it's too late, the time to act is, is now. Not later. Not someday. Right here, right now. Keystone backers have denounced Obama's decision. In a statement, TransCanada, the company behind Keystone, said, quote, misplaced symbolism was chosen over merit and science. Republican senator and presidential hopeful Marco Rubio said Obama, quote, continues to prioritize the demands of radical environmentalists over America's energy security. But the broad coalition that opposed the Keystone XL, including environmentalists, indigenous groups, farmers, ranchers, are hailing the culmination of a tireless seven-year campaign. The fight to block the pipeline saw activists chaining themselves to construction machinery along the pipeline's route, hundreds getting arrested in acts of civil disobedience outside the White House, and hundreds of thousands taking part in the largest climate change march in history, the People's Climate March here in New York just over a year ago.
Ending seven years of review and political speculation, President Obama announced earlier today that the Keystone XL oil pipeline has been rejected. Here is the president announcing that in this video. Uh, this morning, Secretary Kerry informed me that after extensive public outreach and consultation with other cabinet agencies, the State Department has decided that the Keystone XL pipeline would not serve the national interests of the United States. I agree with that decision. He's like, that's as dramatic as he gets because mm -hmm. he like paused and emphasized the not. It would not yeah. serve the. But God, he makes the most exciting. I mean, I find this politically exciting, right? Maybe I'm alone. He makes it sound so dreary, like, oh, we're not going to do the Keystone Pipeline. Dude, drop the elbow. Be like, okay, now do all the people who want a Keystone Pipeline, your own future line. Gone. Okay. Well, even the way he worded it, he said the State Department has decided. Yes. It yeah. will not. Well, and I yeah. agree. But, but. To be fair. Regardless, it ain't happening. No, no. And I'm, I was totally wrong about this. I've lost money on this. I want to congratulate everybody who was right about this. And we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but to be fair to him, he did say that the State Department would be making that decision because the Keystone Pipeline crossed the border. So the State Department was always going to make the decision. Yeah. So he has to say that as he's introducing it. Now, we got one more from Obama, and yes, then we'll get into the substance of why he turned it down. For years, the Keystone Pipeline has occupied what I frankly consider an overinflated role in our political discourse. Let me briefly comment on some of the reasons why the State Department rejected this pipeline. First, the pipeline would not make a meaningful long-term contribution to our economy. Second, the pipeline would not lower gas prices for American consumers. In fact, gas prices have already been falling steadily. That's right. And ah, so, right the, and right, right. So yeah. the second part of that is what we've been saying on the show for a long time. And he elaborated uh, on it overall in the press conference when he explained, well, you know, the pipeline comes through the U.S. and goes out the Gulf to other countries, right? So it doesn't affect gas prices here in the U.S. I mean, on day one, we were like, it's not for us. Yeah. There's a reason why it goes to the Gulf, so it can leave, so it can be exported to other countries. So now, does some of it stay here? Of course, as, as but that's because we buy oil in an international market. Yeah. So it's a drop in the bucket of that international market, not just the internal U.S. or North American market. And that's what he's alluding to there. To be fair, some would have ended up staying in the U.S. when it inevitably sprung leaks and destroyed huge swaths of the environment of the U.S. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we would have gotten that stuff, and free yeah. of charge. Yeah, actually, we would have had to pay for the cleanup. That's true. Not free, but we would have so gotten it. So you're telling me, Jenk, that oil that comes from Canada goes <laughs> in a pipe, goes all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, Mm -hmm. no, and then gets and gets put on a ship and goes to another country where it gets burned and turned into energy. None of that money comes to us. So they say, well, look, we would have built a pipeline, so that would have been jobs. So in a sense, that's money coming to us. And then they talked about how oh, it was going to create so thousands upon thousands of jobs. And then you find out there was like thirty-five jobs. Yeah, <laughs> like, there really weren't that many jobs it would have created. Permanent jobs. Oh, permanent, almost none, right? But even temporarily, it really wouldn't have created that many yeah. jobs. Uh, not nearly as much as advertised. And 
So it's Canada's oil, it's their natural resource, right? And they're selling it to us as well as other markets. But they sell it, like I said, in the international market. We're not getting a better price for it. It's not like, hey, thank you for having the pipeline go through your land, so you will now buy gas. American consumers, you will now get the gas 10 cents cheaper than everybody else in the world, yeah, right? No. Yeah. no, that's not how it works, yeah. right? So there's other contracts that are involved in that pipeline where some people would get paid out, right? But it's it's a de minimis impact on us because the main impact would be gas prices, and it would hardly move the needle yeah. at all. The two or, big lies were jobs and uh, oil prices, and how as oil prices escalate, this is the this and this and these are the two lies that are constantly floated when it comes to drilling and exploration. It's jobs, and we we've got to become energy independent. And somehow this got folded into that as well. And it makes no sense, as you say, all you have to do is look at the, the superficial aspects of it. It's just a pipeline that's passing through. It's not even U.S. oil, right? Mm -hmm. And so it makes no sense. But it's the same lie repeated over and over and over again. So the one thing I would say is, you know, keep your eye on that lie. It's the one that's always floated. It's about exploration of the Gulf. It's about exploration of the Arctic. Whatever the exploration project is, it's going to bring oil into the U.S. and it's going to make for U.S. jobs. Yeah. And, and generally, it's not true. I mean, the, the lie here was revealed only because there was so much environmental outcry. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, I really, really want to give credit to those uh, brave fighters who fought, honestly, the Obama administration, let alone the Republicans on this. If they had not fought, uh, the Obama administration would have approved this two years ago. Right? They were ready to approve it. Every single sign pointed to approval. Bill McKibben, 350.org, yep. John, read the, read the rest of the list. So, uh, uh, Mark Weiss, he headed up uh, the Sierra Club's uh, division that was devoted to fighting the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, James Hansen uh, worked for the Goddard Institute at NASA. He was the one of the first back in 2011 who raised public awareness of the pipeline. Um, the National uh, Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, Credo Mobile, and the Indigenous Environmental Network have all been organizations or people who've been lobbying against it for a number of years. And so I, I want to not only give them tremendous credit because they made this happen. Without them, there's no way this would have gone down the way that it did, right? Uh, and second of all, uh, eat a little crow here because I didn't think they could pull it off. I thought the Obama administration was set on making it happen. I believe that Obama is fairly conservative in his principles and, and is ready to play ball with almost any corporation you put out there in front of him. Uh, and you could see that in the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, and, and I thought he would have done the same thing here that he's done on almost every issue. That's what I said. I even made a bet with our producer, J.R. Jackson, uh, $20 I just lost today. And as I always say, I hope to God I'm wrong. In this case, yes, I was wrong. Woo! Okay, can't, there's the best $20 I'll ever spend, right, is, uh, is J.R. winning that bet. And those guys made it happen. All the people that, uh, that John talked about, McKibben was a huge factor out in front. And what the reason they won is what they did was they fought, fought, fought. They delayed so long that Obama, who's used to conceding to Republicans, got to a point in his second term where he was like, oh, there's no point in conceding anymore. Yeah. Like, they're not giving me anything. There's no hope they're ever going to give me anything. So then what's the point of conceiving? And you know what? I kind of don't like them. Yeah. <laughs> right? Wasn't this a legacy right. move, too, for him, Jank? I mean, Impossible, he's concerned yeah. a little bit about his legacy. Yeah. That's right. And it delayed it long enough for it to partly affect the next election a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. And Hillary Clinton has said because of the public pressure yeah. when she's trying to win in a primary, in a Democratic primary, that she's against the pipeline. Yeah. So for a and number it, of those factors, that delay wound up extending the fight long enough to win. Improbable, but that's why you fight, because yeah. you never know when you're going to win.
All right, let's talk a little bit about Project Sunroof. This is super interesting. We've talked about how the cost for installing solar panels and solar energy on homes has gone down and down and down, and more and more homeowners are turning to solar power. And Google came up with a way to make this process easier. There's this thing called Project Sunroof, where Google combines its mapping data from Google Maps with its computing resources and they can actually calculate, if you type in your address to Project Sunroof, it'll calculate how much sunlight the roof of that address gets, and it will give you information about the possible cost savings for installing solar, as well as, uh, I think, even recommending possible vendors for those uh, uh, solar products. This is uh, a great idea, and I think that the sort of crowdsourcing or... or uh, 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 sort of assembling the data necessary to figure these things out is going to be a great driver of getting more people to switch over to these technologies. Yeah, this is a great idea. Uh, it could get someone who is just curious, uh, excited about having solar panels or, or trying to, um, I don't know, just, you know, seeing what would it, would it be like, what would it cost, uh, installation. There's a lot of questions. So it's brilliant. I don't know how difficult this was to do for them. Probably pretty easy. There's this misconception about solar power in the U.S. that we just don't get enough sun in the U.S. for solar power to be uh, viable. But we did a report on this a couple of years ago that actually still gets a lot of views on YouTube, which is that if you look at Germany, which has switched a significant portion of its energy over to solar power, Germany's solar resource is similar to that of Alaska's. Alaska, with the sun that it gets, could do what Germany has done. So very clearly, the United States, the, the mainland United States, the contiguous 48 states, have more than enough solar, uh, receive more than enough solar energy, solar hours, to make significant transitions to solar power. And hopefully the Google Sunroof Project will, will tell more and more people that that's the reality. Yeah, and unfortunately for some people, their homes are just not going to be ideal. Um, and uh, there's a home near us here in town where there has been this huge erected solar panel, uh, whatever you want to call it. I think uh, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, contraption, and it's completely detached from the home, and it seemed to be the only way that they could utilize the the lights on their property. Um, it's kind of an eyesore, but um, yeah, not everyone will be able to use the sunlight to to the best extent. I've seen on the highway the Massachusetts Turnpike from Boston to Western Massachusetts that on the side of the highway you will see just a large area and it's sort of it's it looks to be within the sort of borders of the highway so it's not there instead of like a house for example it's right next to the highway just big fields of solar panels and I don't know what those are powering I don't know if it's the 
highway rest stops or what it is, but there's all of these little areas where you could definitely stick in solar panels where they get a lot of sun, and that's all going to add up to significant energy generation. The biggest environmental problem people don't know about, well, a lot of people are ignoring or choosing to ignore or choosing to disagree with climate change. I think it's how little water there is actually on the planet. If the earth was the size of a basketball, if you took, even though we say it's 70% covered with water, if you take all the water off that earth, it would fit into a, a ping pong ball. The fresh water is 3% of that ping pong ball, so it's a, it's, a, it's a grain of salt. That's all the fresh water on Earth, and so it has to go in just the right places, in just the right amounts, at just the right time of year, or civilizations get unstable, animals die, uh, growing seasons changed. It's incredibly sensitive, but I think people think that there's an awful lot of water. It is not. But I would argue that one problem that most people are a bit oblivious to and have their head in the sand is, is fresh water. And most people just do not connect the dots. They don't see that, uh, hey, my tap is actually connected to a lake or a river or a stream or groundwater. They think their water comes from the tap. And we can live without oil. It may not be as comfortable, but we can't live without water. I would say the biggest environmental problem that's still a quiet and not often thought about, uh, but very much looming challenge, is the acidification of the ocean. As more CO2 is taken up into seawater, uh, this is changing the carbonate balance or, and risks really toppling the carbonate balance that has made the ocean function and work the way it has for millennia. The you know, ugly stepsister of climate change is ocean acidification. Nobody knows about it. It's something that's happening because as we burn fossil fuels and we put the carbon dioxide into our air, the ocean is absorbing it and it's making it more acidic. If you go to the middle of the Pacific Ocean or the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, that the, the water has become very acidic because it's absorbing carbon dioxide and that's making it hard for fish to grow, to make skeletons or shells. This is the silent crisis of the sea. Pteropod shells are thinning and having difficulty forming because they're changing acidity. It undoubtedly will also affect uh, fish and marine mammals in both direct and indirect ways. People, I, I think they take oceans for granted the same way we take that picture of Earth from space for granted. We need Someone needs to give us a good slap upside the head and say, look, this is about you. Uh, and you need to pay attention because stuff's about to happen that you're not going to like.
this program is sponsored by Casper. They're a company that sells high-quality memory foam mattresses on the internet, which sounds crazy at first, but the more you think about it, the more awesome it actually is. So let's say you need a mattress. First of all, you don't have to leave your house. And secondly, you don't have to lay on a mattress in a showroom awkwardly for 30 seconds while a salesman watches you. Casper lets you try their mattresses risk-free for 100 days, and they don't even watch you while you sleep. Then, if you want to return it, they make it painless, but it's really unlikely you're going to want to because they have obsessively engineered their mattresses using both latex and memory foam to get just the right sink and balance for a better night's sleep. Casper mattresses are made in America, and their pricing is hard to beat. High-quality mattresses can easily start at over $1,000, but since Casper cuts out all the middlemen, their pricing starts at just $500 for a twin-size mattress and then goes up to only $950 for a king. And to help you out even more, you can get $50 off your order by going to casper.com best and using the offer code BEST at checkout. Terms and conditions do apply. That's casper.com best and use the offer code BEST at checkout for $50 off your order and to let them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. On the line with us, distinguished professor of meteorology, the director of the Earth Systems Science Center at Penn State University, the author of Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change, second edition, and uh, the hockey stick wars, as I recall, uh, Dr. Michael Mann is back with us. Dr. Mann, welcome back. Uh, thanks, Tom. It's always good to be with you. What's the title of your book about the uh, the, the climate wars? Oh, it's the, the hockey stick and the climate wars. There you Dispatches go. Dispatches from the front lines. Dispatches from the front lines. A brilliant, brilliant book. Um, there's weird stuff going on with this congressman, Lamar Smith, who heads up the House Science Committee. Yeah. And uh, can you tell us what's going on here? I, I, it's, it's, it, it seems like it's the most underreported story in America right now. It is. Um, and some people have called it sort of worse than Benghazi <laughs> in terms of sort of the, uh, you know, the, the stance that our current Congress, uh, our current Republican uh, congressional leadership has taken with respect to uh, matters of science. Uh, they've politicized science in some ways. Um, that's even more extreme than their politicization of our national security. And uh, they, uh, they are led by a uh, climate change denier, Lamar Smith, a Republican from Texas, who is one of the largest recipients of fossil fuel money in the U.S. Congress. And he has used, uh, many would say abused, his authority as the chair of the House Science Committee to, in fact, engage in attacks against science. Um, so some of you know I, on occasion i've uh, I've argued that maybe for the time being we should be calling this the house anti science community because they are indeed um, the leadership are antagonistic uh, when it comes to matters of science, especially findings of science that clash with the interests of the powerful vested interests who fund their campaigns, in this case, the fossil fuel industry. And so Lamar Smith has uh, tried to change the way the National Science Foundation funds scientific research so that uh, there is a direct involvement by Congress in deciding what science gets funded and what doesn't. Uh, so science becomes political? Um, there is, uh, he has uh, attempted to engage in open-ended fishing expeditions and wish, uh, you know, 
what some would call witch hunts against scientists, climate scientists, who have um, spoken out about uh, the threat of climate change. And the latest act, he is going after NOAA. He is targeting NOAA scientists with the threat of a subpoena um, because he doesn't like the results of their their peer-reviewed research that shows that global warming is real and that it proceeds uh, apace and that we continue to see uh, more and more extreme impacts of climate change. This is this is sort of like uh, Lois Lerner at the IRS. I mean, you, you've got a woman now, she has been completely cleared. She was just totally doing her job. And her job was to say, are these applications for nonprofit status uh, legitimate or not, basically? And she had flagged both Tea Party and liberal groups. Right. And there was just such a much larger number of Tea Party groups that were trying to start that a larger number of them were on hold while they were being evaluated. But there was no there there in terms of anything she did wrong. She was just a bureaucrat working for the Internal Revenue Service. And when the Republicans in Congress, you know, after Fox News basically turned her into the villain, the Republicans in Congress dragged her before Congress. She had to go out and hire lawyers. I mean, this this destroyed this woman's life. Right. And that's what they're trying to do to scientists? It is. And, you know, there's an irony here, because um, uh, 10 years ago, I was under a very similar assault by Joe Barton, uh, the now uh, infamous for his apology to BP um, uh, after they spilled all that uh, petroleum into our Gulf of Mexico. He felt we should apologize to, to them. Right. Um, and, of course, Barton, uh, again, one of the largest recipients of fossil fuel money in the U.S. Congress. At the time, he was uh, chairing the House Energy and Commerce Committee, and he attempted to uh, subject me to a subpoena in an effort to discredit this iconic uh, hockey stick graph that uh, we published a decade and a half ago. It became a potent symbol in the uh, climate change debate and in an attempt to uh, discredit uh, that result, to in an attempt to discredit me as a means of um, you know, calling into question concerns about climate change, he engaged in a very similar open-ended fishing expedition, tried to subject me to a congressional subpoena. And here's the irony. The biggest hero in the story turns out to have been another Republican. It was Sherwood Bollard, who was an old-school pro-science, pro-environment uh, Republican from upstate New York who chaired the House Science Committee. And Bollard fiercely called out uh, his fellow Republicans, stopping just short of uh, accusing him of engaging in modern-day McCarthyism. And back then, we really had, you know, we had figures like uh, Sherwood Bullard within the Republican Party who were willing to stand up to this anti-science faction, this growing anti-science faction. I, I fear that we don't have nearly as much of that now. And here, in this case, it's actually the chair of the House Science Committee who is going after the scientists. Wow. So it used to be that the chair of the committee, even though he's a Republican, defended science. Now the chair of the committee, a Republican, is attacking science. What happens right. as a scientist when you get a subpoena from Congress? What what does that do to your life, personally well, and professionally? Uh, I think it's intended, first of all, to send a signal to other scientists that this, this too will happen to you 
if you dare speak out about the, you know, the, the threat of an issue like climate change that challenges the vested interests who, who fund our campaigns. Um, I think it's meant to do that. I think it's meant to take you off your game. It's meant to distract you. It's meant to make your life as miserable as possible again, because that sends a message then to your colleagues, right? That, uh, um, that uh, this is someplace you don't want to go because this will happen to you just like it had happened to Mike Mann. Um, and so I think it's intended to, uh, make it difficult for you to do your job. Um, often uh, the same sort of interest groups will try to drum up sort of uh, uh, outrage against you uh, via, you know, nasty editorials and commentaries uh, on the conservative media. They'll try to pressure your institution to fire you. Um, they will post your name on websites that are um, typically uh, – you know, aimed at sort of firing up a certain rabble, uh, generating outrage um, against scientists so that you will be subject to nasty letters and emails and phone calls and threats against your life and threats against my family. And I describe all those experiences um, that I've had uh, in my book, The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, and all those experiences that I've had because I, you know, uh, I, I dared publish this, um, this this graph a decade and a half ago, and uh, as a result of that iconic graph, um, I have uh, found myself you know, subject to all sorts of attacks um, of this sort for you know, a decade and a half now. And ultimately, I've embraced that. In the, you know, it's provided me an opportunity to actually participate in this very important discussion. And mm -hmm. so uh, it wasn't what I signed up for, but I welcome the opportunity it's brought. But, you know, I really worry about my fellow scientists who don't, you know, haven't developed a thick skin, don't, ha don't have the experience to deal with these sorts of attacks, and they're being subject to the same sorts of things. Right. We should set up a support group. <laughs> well, there is. There's the climate, believe it or not, and, and, and it will shock you that it's even necessary that it exists, but there is a Climate Science Legal Defense Fund now. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Science is real. Sanders is taking a strong stand against continued climate change, announcing earlier today his support for a new bill that would ban all new fossil fuel development on U.S. federal lands and terminate current leases that aren't currently producing. The bill would also ban offshore drilling for oil and gas in the Arctic and the Atlantic and would stop new leases for offshore drilling in the Pacific and the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, Bernie Sanders said, I believe all of us have a moral responsibility Worry less about your campaign contributions. Worry more about your children and grandchildren. The debate is over. Uh, and I believe that the, the debate actually is over. And uh, we recently saw a poll we talked about in the Young Turks a couple of weeks ago that uh, more and more Americans accept the scientific reality of climate change. And this uh, keep it in the ground bill is one attempt to stop that climate change going forward. 
Uh, Jeff Merkley, who's another Democratic senator who signed on to this bill, released a press uh, release saying, the legislation is designed to keep over 90% of the potential carbon emissions from oil, gas, and coal on our federal lands and federal waters underground forever. And that is significant because many climate scientists believe that between now and 2050, we have to keep at least 80% of remaining carbon emissions producing materials like coal and gas and natural gas under the ground to stop the climate from warming more than two degrees Celsius. And so this would help us to get towards that. It's not enough by itself, but it is one move that would actually help. And when we're talking about how much material, how much carbon spewing material this would actually stop from being released, here are some estimates of what's currently available on federal land specifically. 31 billion barrels of oil and 231 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. Now, many people, including those in the oil and natural gas industries, would say, we can't not drill this stuff. That's going to grind our economy to a halt. We need this energy to produce gasoline and things of that sort. And they may have something there, although they're missing out on the fact that if we don't drill this, it'll put more pressure on us to move over to renewable sources of energy, which would allay some of their economic concerns by building new industries in America and would also stop uh, the climate from continued heating and understand what lies behind their economic arguments. Another deeper, darker economic argument. These industries know that Americans and people around the world are slowly understanding climate change, how it functions, how we can possibly fight back against it. And they will at some point understand it the same way they understand the link between cigarettes and cancer uh, today. And so before, that, before we reach that point, before we get there, these industries want to suck every ounce of natural gas and gasoline out of the ground so that they can convert it into delicious greenbacks right now. They don't want to wait five years. They don't want to wait 20 years because eventually people are going to catch on. They want it out right now. And by the way, this is an important side note. The bill is co-sponsored by Senators Barbara Boxer, Democrat, Ben Cardin, Democrat, Kristen Gillibrand, Democrat, Patrick Leahy, Democrat, and Elizabeth Warren. Thank you for fitting in there, Elizabeth Warren. Also, a Democrat, suspiciously no Republicans currently speaking up in support of this, although that surprises nobody. Now, currently, we face an incredibly complex series of decisions over climate change and the continued heating of our climate. Uh, social decisions, political decisions, policy decisions, economic decisions. And we need to address all of these to stop the climate from heating past the tipping point, the boiling point, if you will. Now, whether the Keep It in the Ground Act is a necessary part of dealing with those problems, that I don't know. But I do know that at least at the present, Bernie Sanders and a few of the other Democrats listed here are one of the few politicians who are willing to discuss this problem openly, to act on it, to possibly allay some of that heating and save the human species as we know it. Towards the end of the new film, This Changes Everything, Naomi Klein, author of the book that inspired the movie, notices something about the people who are leading the charge for change. They come from sacrifice zones, she points out, the very same places the powers that be have written off for environmental or ecological devastation. There's another thing about them, too. From Beijing to Montana to the Alberta tar sands, those people in the front lines of resistance are female. 
In one stirring scene, Indian grandmothers plant themselves in front of the filmmaker's car, refusing to let it pass until they're absolutely sure it's bound for the village, not the nearby coal mine. In another, a Chinese filmmaker asks her daughter if she's ever seen Blue Sky, and the film of their encounter attracts a million viewers in a week. There's Naomi, too, of course. In her book, she touches on her struggle to get pregnant and her suspicions about pollution. My point, though, isn't that female biology explains female behavior. I don't believe that. But women's experiences are relevant. And I think women are in the forefront of the struggle against sacrifice zones because women know a thing or two about being sacrificed. Take right now, every armed force from ISIS to the United Nations seems to agree that women's bodies can be sacrificed to war, for war. So too women's work. A new study from the Kinsey Group reports that women are still doing 75% of the unpaid work around the world. In the U.S. alone, that adds up to $1.5 trillion in value sacrificed. And all too often, our lives and life chances are just too inconvenient to mention. When Pope Francis, on his visit to the U.S., met for a moment with an opponent of marriage equality, it caused a firestorm. The fact that for his entire trip, the Pope was surrounded by men and an institution that opposed female equality was met with a respectful hush. Women, as the artist Barbara Kruger so famously said, your body is a battleground. So it's no surprise women know a thing or two about sacrifice zones and about fighting back. temperature rises above 2 degrees centigrade, we're screwed. These are the climate delegates from 195 countries. They'll meet in Paris later this year at the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. With a name like that, this has to be important. They will hold meetings, propose language, hold more meetings. They will not see this, this, or this. They will try to achieve a new international agreement on the climate with the aim of keeping climate disruption below 2 degrees centigrade. They have met before at similar summits and achieved what we would call mixed results. But this time is different. The world's biggest economies, including the United States, China, the UK, and Germany, are already transitioning to a clean energy economy. Grassroots activists are fighting fossil fuels across the world. Even Pope Francis is calling for global action. We could say that all the stars are aligned to act in Paris. President Obama has worked hard to come up with an ambitious U.S. climate commitment. He's sending a delegation to Paris. Along with other nations, our delegation must go all out to adopt an agreement to address climate disruption. The delegates have to get their passports ready, pack their suitcases, brush up on their French, jump on an airplane, small seats, no legroom, babies crying, jet lag. And why is it so important that they go through all this trouble? It's because we need them to act on the climate. That's my plan. For you, your cousin, your brother, your father, your mother, your significant other, your children, and yes, your beloved Fido, too. So we should let President Obama know that we're behind him as our delegates journey to Paris. 
And if you can't make it to the airport to say goodbye to our delegation in person, you can still tell President Obama you support strong climate action in Paris. I phoned your office this afternoon. They said they hadn't heard anything from you. It's been seven days without a word. I have to keep you in Paris on my mind. I have to keep you in Paris on my mind. I didn't know it would be the last time, the last time I saw you. Going back to Paris on the train, raining and without you, it's not the same. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here is a glimmer of hope to remind you that not absolutely everything is completely terrible all of the time. Today's update, of course, Keystone XL victory and the road to the United Nations Climate Conference in Paris. As we know, Keystone XL is officially dead. Thanks to activism led by an extraordinarily brave and diverse group of relentless climate activists refusing to give up, willing to risk repeated arrest over several years, President Obama has announced that Keystone will not go forward. Take time to sign the Sierra Club's hashtag ThanksObama note. It took what seems like forever, but he did finally mostly listen and keep the project from being completed. Rejecting Keystone is an important step not just for the long-term goals of campaigns like 350.org's Divest from Fossil Fuels and the Sierra Club's Keep It in the Ground, but as a political optics move ahead of the climate negotiations in Paris at the end of the month. It's easier for the U.S. to ask other nations to curb their pollution in an attempt to prevent catastrophic, irreversible climate change if we are taking visible steps of our own. As was covered just a few weeks ago on this show, international organizations like 350.org have co-organized the upcoming Global Climate March on November 28th and 29th. You can find the action in your area or help put one together. There's still plenty of time, so visit 350.org slash Paris. If you're unable to march, and not everyone is, the Sierra Club has some great visibility-boosting actions. At actinparis.org, as well as the hashtag hashtag act in Paris. You can find updates on the goals for the talks, check out the best of the best from commitments countries have made ahead of the talks, and read what international faith leaders are saying in support of bold action in Paris. Even if you aren't religious, you know you have those friends and family in your networks who are, who may be swayed by the Pope, the Dalai Lama, and other recognizable figures. And frankly, even for the non-religious, it's pretty inspiring to see unity among Buddhist, Catholic, Episcopal, Greek Orthodox, Islamic, Jewish, and Hindu leaders from around the world. As expected, there's a social media campaign, one that has a in-the-real-world twist to it. People who submit photos of themselves holding a sign with the Act in Paris hashtag through Twitter and or Instagram will not only show public support for strong action ahead of the summit, they'll become part of a collage that's going to the summit. The Sierra Club is posting what will hopefully be a sizable pictorial display of people from around the world demanding their leaders get something real accomplished. Looking ahead to next year, which is right around the corner, 350.org has actions already planned to follow up on the Paris talks. You can get all of that information at 350.org slash Paris. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab 
tab at bestoftheleft.com. If pushing our leaders to finally get something real done to slow climate change matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the global climate change march and hashtag act in Paris via social media so that others in your network can participate too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. I am here with Avi Lewis, dear friend, incredible filmmaker. Hi, Laura. Congratulations on this next most amazing film, This Changes Everything. Thank you so much. It has been a rather long labor, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> and quickly, just remind us, it was inspired by Naomi's book, Naomi Klein's book. Your it wife. was a parallel process. Um, we actually decided that to, to try to get radical ideas and new framings, new narratives into a very cluttered culture, and as we look at all the different screens in our lives, we thought we should try to come out of as many as possible. So started the book and the film and a web outreach political pillar of the project all at the same time, and they developed uh, in parallel over five years, which is why we can't really say it's based on the book. It's my exploration of Naomi's ideas in the world. But it's confusing because it's narrated by her and they're her ideas. So it, it, is, a, it is a Klein-Lewis joint. Production. All right, very good. Well, let's play, let's play the trailer. Take a look. The majority of the human race does not see global warming as a serious threat. Celebrate! Climate legislation is dead. We, in the global north, with less than 20% of the population, are responsible for over 70% of global emissions. We are drilling all over the place. On the other side of the world, those people who are the most affected by climate change, most affected by environmental injustice, have the least responsibility for creating this crisis in the first place. The amount of fossil fuel that we're combusting year on year is growing. We're going in completely the wrong direction. I've spent six years wandering through the wreckage caused by the carbon in the air and the economic system that put it there. That old paradigm will be forced to change, either by the environment around us or by us. communities who are thrown into the front line you see the incredible transformation they become stronger they stand up so here's the big question what if global warming isn't only a crisis what if it's the best chance we're ever going to get to build a better world change or be changed. There are limits. Let's celebrate the limits because we can reinvent our different future. So the trailer ends there with this 
sense of opportunity. Mm -hmm. This isn't the crisis of the climate isn't just a crisis, but our chance to remake the world anew. Um, is it? Well, I, 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 good, fair question, right? I, I think that the, so first of all, the this in This Changes Everything isn't the book or the film or our idea. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a bombastic title, but it's not, you know, we're not that soaked in hubris. Climate change changes everything. We are in for dramatic physical change to our world one way or another. On the track that we're on, we already have 0.8 degrees Celsius of warming from what's locked in from the Industrial Revolution up until now. We're headed for four degrees or more. Even two degrees, if the world's governments finally came together and had a meaningful binding deal, would still mean massive physical changes. The future is radical, one way or another. We have an opportunity to get off this path and actually move to a low-carbon, post-carbon society in a way that serves the needs of justice, where people who got the worst deal in the old economy are first for the, for the benefits of the next economy. And, and we have a way to address the, the, the fundamental problem of an economic system that creates inequality and suffering as the endless byproduct of wealth for the few. And that's and really what I appreciated about your film and what made it so different from others like An Inconvenient Truth. Well, you say at the beginning of the trailer, you didn't want to make another polar bear flick. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's, it's finding, and this was the, the kernel of Naomi's idea when she started, before she had all of the argument and evidence marshaled and before I'd gone out and shot all the stories. She kind of helped put together, put the dots together to say, the logic of the economic system itself is what's driving this crisis. And that's an opportunity, because we know that system and that logic needs changing. Like you say, just say to anyone, can we have infinite growth on a finite planet? It's like, no, duh, obviously not. And yet our entire world is fashioned on that premise. It's so, fashioned on a story. And yes. one of the other clips that we have has to do with exactly that. The problem is the story. Take a look at this. Can I be honest with you? I've always kind of hated films about climate change. What is it about those vanishing glaciers and desperate polar bears that makes me want to click away? Is it really possible to be bored by the end of the world? It's not that I don't care what happens to polar bears. It's just that we're told that the cause isn't out there. It's in us. It's human nature. We're innately greedy and short-sighted. And if that's true, there is no hope. But when I finally stopped looking away, traveled into the heart of the crisis, met people on the front lines, I discovered so much of what I thought I knew was wrong. And I began to wonder, what if human nature isn't the problem? What if even greenhouse gases aren't the problem? What if the real problem is a story, one we've been telling ourselves for 400 years? Take us back to that moment of the, the story being told. Because several things came together right at that same time. The engineers yeah. discovering that they could harness the Earth's resources mm -hmm. in a whole different way. And eco economics 
changing too. Well, you have this period of the of the Enlightenment, the Scientific Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, uh, and the birth of of modern capitalism, all fueled. I mean, lots of you know parallel and of unfolding historical processes. But fossil fuels takes the existing colonialism, slavery. Um, emergence of international trade and turbocharges yeah. it, and things go into hyperdrive for capitalism in this period of unfettered growth. But what it did to us as a species is, and this is in the West, right? And this is not, we're not talking about all humans here by, by any means, but it gave people in, in, in the global North this idea that we really could decouple from nature. It didn't, we could sail whether there was wind or not. We could, you know, b b before fossil fuels, factories had to be near rushing water right. to power the machines. All of a sudden, you could put factories where there were pools of cheap labor in cities. And so the explosion of capitalism, of colonialism, all, you know, got fueled by the, by the, by the technology of digging up fossil fuels and burning them. And that drove a story. And that story still runs our world. We still act globally like we can... Uh, harvest anything from nature, that we can extract anything from nature, that we can bend nature to our will, and that there will never be any mm. consequences. And the earth is screaming at us that there are consequences, that this is not true, and we need a new story to understand our place in the world, our relationship with nature. Now, if I have my history right, I think the steam engine was it invented the very same year as the American Revolution. Well, there's there's a lots of interesting historical moments. Which that makes this a really explosive. American story. It's a very American story, um, but it is you know it it, it is like the, the the version of the steam engine um, that really drove the Industrial Revolution also was commercialized in the same year as Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. So it's a capitalist story. This, you know, fossil-fueled capitalism is still the system that we live in. You have a lot of people in the film who talk about exactly that, but at least the first one that mentions the name of the system, capitalism, says it with great trepidation. Yes, yeah. Well, we, we had a lot of conversations in the, in, in the process, in our editorial process about the C word. You know? <laughs> Naomi's book is called This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. And I didn't use capitalism versus the climate in the film title because I, you know, because I, I didn't want to create the expectation that this was going to be a film where people discuss capitalism. Then you're defining it, you're having a debate, all of a sudden you're making a talking heads film. I wanted to make a film that was rooted in personal stories, in lived experience, in communities, in struggle, people who are changing the world in the face of great threat. So, but it, the capitalism needs to be there. It's the yeah. subtext of the entire thing. So the first time, and this was very intentional, is about 45 minutes into the movie, Naomi's interviewing a woman who's one of the leaders uh, of a community struggle against a Canadian gold mine in northern Greece. And she says, we have to get to the core of the problem before we can solve it. And Naomi says, well, what's the core of the problem? <laughs> no, having no idea what she's going to say. And she says, well, uh, it's the economic system of capitalism, I guess. And she's so sheepish yeah. about saying the word. And it's just, it's just this stark reminder of how hard it is to name the system that we live in, yeah. to actually have honest conversations about the underpinning of our entire uh, global economy. So I, I left that moment in because it just seems to reveal so much about how hard it is to deal, to change the grand narratives. And yet it's at the center of, of everything. Hey Jay, it's Joseph from Toronto, and uh, this message is to address the point that Simon from San Diego made in your previous episode. 
Uh, essentially, Simon from San Diego makes a point that although Jefferson owned slaves, he's for the abolition of slavery. And he also presents to us a sort of more relativist argument for us to accept that Jefferson owned, purchased, and sold people. That Jefferson himself was just a product of his times. These comments or arguments are generally made when such scathing indictments are lobbed against revered historical figures such as uh, Jefferson and Washington, for example. In reality, Jefferson believed that black people were racially inferior to white people and that they were as incapable as children. And this belief actually fueled uh, his support for the termination of slavery within the Federal Union. For he believed that a fate such as Haiti was inevitable within the Union's future if slavery was allowed to continue. I tend to dismiss these arguments because although not intentionally, these arguments ultimately come off as a disregard or denial of black humanity and it forces people to uh, see history through the eyes of Jefferson who was obviously in a privileged position instead of to see uh, history empathetically through the eyes of the slaves. I think this must be why so many people say oh slavery wasn't this bad or it wasn't that bad or people had free time and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, thanks Jay. Uh, I really love the show. Hey Jay, this is Diana, a longtime listener from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I think for a couple of years now, and I've always asked my family to gift it to me, and now it's time to step up to, up to the plate and become a regular subscriber. So I will get around to it, but I wanted to share what compelled me to call in, because I've never called in before, was your thoughtfulness about what's going on about no calls. And I got busted, because when you gave us that all other way to leave a message, I thought, oh, that's something I want to learn how to do, so I'll just do it. But of course, I never got around to it. So I thought, oh, I'm going to take this opportunity to say I think you do an absolutely fabulous job. I'm a big fan, and um, I'll get around to it. This is proof positive. Hey there, Jay. This is Brian in Arizona. I am a cis white male, and as such, I get very intimidated by engaging in public political discussions anymore. More than once, I have exposed my privilege, exposed my ignorance in ways that are just embarrassing and upsetting. I don't want to upset other people. I want to be part of the discussion. I do love the voicemail section, but I find that to be a barrier to entry. I was actually thrilled to hear that you were going to start taking callers who use the voicemail or the voice recording apps, and that's what this is being done with. So I hope that people who are maybe less intimidated than I or more knowledgeable than I will uh, heed your call and uh, start putting more messages your way because I do enjoy that section of the program and I want to see it continue. Thank you for all you do. Hi Jay, this is Jeff, South Florida cop. I haven't called in in a while and it wasn't for any particular reason. I've just been backed up on episodes of other podcasts that I listen to a lot that I actually found through your show, like uh, The Majority Report. And uh, I went ahead and downloaded a voice recorder app and thought I'd go ahead and give it a try after I heard your rant about you not getting a lot of voicemails. And it's good to get feedback. I still like your show. But now that I know that I can stop and start over anytime I want, I've tried to do this three or four times. And 
I don't think I'm ever going to get it done. I don't think I'm ever going to do this again. I'll just call in every now and then. Uh, this is stupid. I hate this thing. So, hopefully that gives you some insight as to why people aren't leaving you memos. Yeah, the, the voicemail's a lot better. I really don't like, like the way this works. This is awful. Jay, it's Wade. Hey, this guy doesn't listen to your comments. And I have to say, the voicemail thing with the with being able to record it on the voicemail and say then had a total effect on me. And I never knew why until you tell you, you you shot it out there. But I think that what it what it does is when I listen to your show, I'm always driving. So like right now I'm on US six in Utah, it's the middle of the night, there's nothing to do. So I I get riled up, I call you and everything's uh, hunky-dory, you know. But now that you, you brought out those... Hey, Jay, it's Wade. There's another reason for voicemails right there. You don't, uh, or excuse me, doing the email thing that you don't get cut off uh, when your phone drops the damn call. Anyway, the reason why I stopped, or, or didn't stop, but, but slowed down my voicemails was because I felt that you kind of wanted them to be voice memos that were emailed in, even though you never specifically said that. I don't think that was your intent at all. But it did have an effect on me, I've got to admit. Uh, you know, I've always felt that I had a lot of, uh, that I always, that I had like a mocking tone in my voice sometimes when I'm debating politics. And so when I hear that on the on, on my voice memo app, I'm like, oh, that sounds terrible. I, I can't send that in. I sound like an asshole. But... When I call into the to the to the voicemail line, obviously I can't hear what I'm you know I can't hear what I'm going to sound like until the show comes out. So um, I guess that's one of the main reasons that I haven't sent in as many as I as I normally would have. The other aspect is time. I call you and listen to your show when I'm driving. You know, right now I'm in Utah. There's nothing to do. I just got to listen to the show, and so I'm going to call and talk to you and. If I do the voice the voice memo thing, I have to wait till I park. Now I'm kind of, you know, I listened to this show six, seven hours ago. I've, I've kind of lost my train of thought. I'm, I'm not motivated to call in. Things like that. I, I can't really put my finger on it either as to why it affects me, but it does. And I just, I'm surprised that you noticed that and surprised that other people, obviously, uh, were having the same, probably for different reasons, but, but having the same kind of, kind of point I, I find that fascinating uh really too i thought i was the only one i, I kind of felt like an idiot that's why i never mentioned anything about it but anyway i'll call in uh, a little bit later here when i know uh that i'll have good quality service you know when i get out to i-70 or something about the today's show but anyway jay just thought that was very insightful comments and uh i appreciate it man we'll talk to you later Take nine. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. And I absolutely have some thoughts on the voicemail conversation. That's a fun one. But first... A couple of quick thoughts on Brian from Arizona and the fear of embarrassment regarding privilege in political conversations. First of all, I totally get where Brian is coming from. I, I have had those feelings myself, but obviously as a host of a political show, I can't just not say things. So 
having been forced into the position of talking about issues that I don't have a 100% grasp on, it has forced me to learn a lesson that I think is one of the most valuable lessons I've learned over the last many, many years, five years, six years. And that is that I, I simply have learned to embrace the fact that I don't know everything and that I will make missteps and that I will offend people. And once you learn that, your reaction should not be to clam up and not ever give your opinion. Your reaction should be to learn to comport yourself in a way that makes clear that you are open to the possibility that you are not correct about everything and that if someone wants to correct you, you will be open to that correction. And if you offend someone, you will be you know, quick to apologize and just recognize, hey, that is not my intention at all. You know, I was meaning no offense. And if someone does bite your head off or something you say, recognize that you should not take that personally. If you know your own intentions and they don't and they bite your head off, just recognize, hey, like who knows what's going on in that person's life? Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they hate the fact that they've been dealing with racism their entire lives. Who knows? Whatever they say to you should be viewed as, all right, like, I clearly, you know, stepped on a live wire here, but that wasn't my intention, and I'm going to work to do better. And having internalized that is the number one thing that has helped me in every single one of these conversations about every marginalized group and every privilege I possess and on and on because I think people get the sense that I can be corrected. I can, you know, people can push back on me and I won't just get defensive. I will actually listen to any criticisms that are directed at me. And uh, so opening myself up in that way has helped me grow more than anything else. And the only thing that allowed me to be open like that was by just recognizing, hey, I'm not going to get everything right. That's just how it is. And uh, by sort of recognizing that, I think I've been getting more and more things right as time has gone on. So that's my advice to Brian and anyone else who feels the way he did. Now on to the fun stuff. Thoughts on voicemails. Uh, first of all, in a, in a weird kind of way, I sort of prefer the voicemail line messages to the voice memo messages. And I think it's for more reasons than I think I even realized originally. But I kind of like the sound of them, the ambiance of a real voicemail message that comes in over a cell phone line or any kind of phone line because it sounds like it's on a phone. So it's a person who sounds like they're on the phone, which is what they are. And, you know, to me, it's like, you know, I grew up in the 90s and, you know, it's it's like if I went and watched an old movie that my family has had on VHS and you go back and you watch it on VHS. So you have the weird tracking lines across the screen that you have to fix and maybe you taped it off of television. And so there are still like the 90s commercials on there. It gives it this weird sort of authenticity in, a, in an odd way. And then in a more direct way, voice memo messages tend to sound more rehearsed, which I think is for very good reason. And we heard that example from Jeff from Florida today, because with voice memo messages, you can edit it yourself, or you can just decide, oh, I'm going to record that again. And so if you, if you have that power, you cannot help but turn into a little bit of a perfectionist, which is exactly what frustrated Jeff. So I, I totally feel your pain on that, because me recording these comments right now 
is just a bigger version of the voice recorder. And since I have the power to edit myself, I can't help but do that. Uh, you know, like my friend David Pakman is much better at speaking extemporaneously because his show is live to tape. That's just how he has it set up. And sometimes, frankly, I wish that there were a way for me to force myself to record live to tape because it would make me a better speaker. It would force me to get my thoughts in order and speak more fluidly. But the fact is, I can edit myself, so I do, and there's no getting around it. Now, good news for everyone, whether you prefer the voice memo uh, email-in thing or uh, just regular call-in voicemails, every single voicemail gets edited. I want people to call in, so I make them sound good. I want the show to sound good, and I want for people to feel like if they call in that they're not going to sound stupid. So I make all the voicemails that come in sound as good as I can. I edit out the uhs and the ums and the awkward pauses and all of that stuff. So if your nervousness about calling in has anything to do with how good you're going to sound, at least take heart that I'm going to do my best to make you sound good. Now, one last thing. Diana, she called in. And her message came in, you know, just within the last couple of days. And in her message, you know, she said very nice things and then also promised to become a member. However, I don't think her membership has come in yet. And, you know, at least not under her name. Maybe maybe she signed up, but it was under her partner's name or, you know, under their account or something. But anyways, regardless of her particular situation, she has given me an idea. I've just shared a bit of the sort of behind-the-scenes stuff of the voicemails. So now let's share a little bit about memberships. Here's the thing. Only about 1% of the people listening are paying members of the show. And to be totally honest, that number is trending down a little bit. It's not like panic time, but... I am a little concerned about it. And so I've been wondering, you know, how can I how can I turn this ship around? So clearly those people who have stepped up are amazing and I could not do the show without them. But the fact that that number is so low that, you know, it's only in that 1% range, that is the reason why you so frequently hear ads on the show. Uh, if there were no ads, there would be no Katie. There would very likely be no activism segments. There would uh, very likely be no social media presence. And there would be a lot more ramen in my diet, to be quite honest. So just imagine how transformative it would be if 2 or 3 or 5% of those listening became members instead of just 1%. And then the problem, of course, is how do we get from here to there? And frankly, I hear what we heard from Diana a lot. People haven't gotten around to donating or becoming members yet, but they have every intention to. And saying that, but not following through, doesn't make anyone a liar or a bad person. It just makes them human. Procrastination and forgetfulness is what we do. That is our bread and butter. So here is the idea that Diana has inspired. Since we're learning so much about psychological tricks and how they can influence us to act, we are going to use the power of our scientific understanding of psychology to motivate ourselves to action. I did not make this up. This is like self-motivation 101, and it totally works. So starting now, we're going to try an experiment in which I open up a portion of the end of the show to be used for motivational public shaming. Here's how it works. If you are one of the literally hundreds or thousands of people who have considered becoming a member but haven't gotten around to it yet, 
simply call into the voicemail line and promise to become a member, and then I will publicly shame you until you either sign up or beg me to stop. If you want to accomplish anything in life, state it publicly. State that you're going to do it so that others can hold you accountable. Like I said, this is self-motivation 101. Uh, this is why people compete with their friends with Fitbit to see how many steps you can take compared to them because it creates outside motivation to do that thing that you want to do anyways, but just don't always have the internal willpower to do on your own. Now, Wade is already a member, so this doesn't apply to him, but we heard from him today, and he was describing what I think a lot of people go through. They are listening to the show while driving, and whatever they're thinking about, whatever plans they're making, they're driving at the time, so they can't act on them. And then by the time they're done driving, they forget about it, or they, you know, the, the motivation is gone. And so if you're thinking about becoming a member, but you forget about by, by the time you get to work or home, well, that doesn't do any good. So now, you don't have to remember because I'm going to help you out. You call in right now while you're thinking about it, promise to become a member, and I will create some external motivation to get you to do what you want to do anyways. Help me help you, right? So if you'd like to call in, promise to become a member, and be publicly shamed until you do, you can leave a message at 202-999-3991. I don't know about you, but I find this stuff absolutely fascinating. And times like this, when you can take real knowledge, uh, you know, real understandings of psychology and then apply it in real life and get real results, that is just the sweet spot of sweet spots. So I am expecting dozens and dozens of voicemails to come in from people promising to become members. And then we're going to see how this goes. So that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course, by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained